So we are continuing our way through the, the book of Galatians. Uh, for those of you who are uh, maybe visiting for the first time, uh, here at Hope, we, we go section by section through, through books of the Bible. And so we're in this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, and he's, he's writing because he's very concerned about this church because they're turning away from the very central message of Christianity for another message that they think is Christianity but actually isn't Christianity. And we find ourselves in, in chapter 3. And so let me just catch you up to speed on where we are in chapter 3. If you, if you have your, your Bible open there, uh, this is also on page 973 and 74 in the Pew Bible that should be uh, near you if, you if you need that. So Paul began this chapter saying that every blessing of the Christian life is through faith, not through works, not through ceremonies or good deeds that we do. And then from verse 6 then to 9, he, he showed how that was true for Abraham, the great father of the faith, that he was declared righteous in God's sight through faith and the promise, not through the good deeds, through ceremonies that he had done. And then verse 10 to 14, Paul explains that actually relying on our deeds, on good works, ceremonies for acceptance with God, isn't just a, a, a bad idea, but it actually is a very dangerous idea, that it, it brings the, the curse of God. He says, cursed is everyone who relies on works of the law, in verse 10. And then Rising out of that, Paul, last week we looked at verse 15 to 18. And so Paul is starting to say, all right, so if, if the law is not how we're accepted by, by God, it's not how we're uh, brought into relationship, counted righteous, justice, or justified, then does it even have a role at all? Or how do you, what do you do with the Old Testament? Do you just throw out the whole Testament? Do you throw out the law of Moses? And so he's explaining, no, that God has a purpose for the law. And as you'll see in our, in our text today, he's really wrestling. Why did God give us the law on Mount Sinai if that's not how we get to heaven? Um, so, again, Galatians 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your law. And I ask that as we go through this, Lord, that you would use this passage to help us um, not only understand our, our Bibles better, but actually understand who you are and how we can have lasting hope in you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So there, there was a, a man that was born in about 85 AD uh, in the Roman Empire. And actually, his, his father was a pastor in the region of Galatia. So, I mean, after the time of Paul, by about 45 years, um, but very much in that original context. And his name was Marcion. Some of you might have, have heard of this guy, Marcion. And he actually became a leading um, kind of heretic, you would say, in the early church. Um, and so he started reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, reading scripture. And, and he said, well, it seems like in the Old Testament, you have this very cruel, vindictive God of justice and judgment. But then in the New Testament, you have this God of love and, and mercy. And so he determined there is actually two gods. There's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. And he brought in a lot of Greek philosophy and said, well, the God of the Old Testament created the world, but the material world is bad. And so Jesus comes as a representative of the one true God who uh, he didn't actually have a body. He just seemed to be human and that he saves us from this, this God of the, the Old Testament. And so this Marcion, therefore, I mean, he, he didn't really like most of the Bible. He intentionally, you know, throughout the Old Testament, obviously, uh, but then he even took what we consider the New Testament and just started kind of throwing books out of it. So he, the four Gospels, he didn't want most of those. He only took Luke because the other ones talk about the Old Testament too much. He took throughout most of the letters of, P, of Peter. He didn't like the book of Hebrews. And then even the letters of Paul, he took 10, but then tried to basically take out anything in the letters of Paul that said anything positive about the Old Testament or about the law. And really, the Marcion's views continue right down to this day. I mean, they've popped up in different forums for uh, thousands of years. I mean, even for me, I, I went to a very secular art school for my undergrad, and a lot of my professors were always trying to self-consciously disprove Christianity in all of my academic classes. And so one in particular would always say, well, there's you know, God in the Old Testament, so this cruel, vindictive God of justice and the loving God of the New Testament. And so it's irreconcilable contradiction disproves Christianity. And really, she was just saying the same thing that Marcion said almost 2,000 years ago. But really, that's the very idea, the very objection that, that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the passage that you, you just heard read. So he knows that if people, what, what we said, people tracking his argument through Galatians, they might just throw up their hands and say, well, I guess the Old Testament, it can't save us. The law can't justify. So maybe the law is actually bad in some way. Maybe it's actually somehow contradictory to the promises of God and the, the love of God in Christ. And, and so you can see Paul's question in verse 19. He says, why then the law? Why did God even bother to give the law? If he gave the promise to Abraham, fulfilled it in Christ. And I always love how, how the Apostle Paul drives his, what he says by these questions, that he always asks the questions that I think a lot of times we're asking. Um, and then shows, so it shows that I think if we're asking those questions that we're actually following what he's saying. And so essentially, you know, this why then the law, did Marcion get it right? Does the, the law have any role at all? 
And so as we go through this passage, Paul shows us that the, the law of God isn't pointless, uh, that it has a point, a purpose, a, a reason. And so the, the first point of the law, we see here that, that the, we, the law exposes our sin. It exposes our sin. And we see that in, again in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So you see how here he's saying that it was added because of transgressions. You think, okay, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Well, we get a little help from other parts of of Scripture. And really what, what Paul's saying is that the law exposes just the depth of our sin, our, our rebellion against God, the way that we do things that don't line up to his character. And Paul says this also in Romans, which has a lot of similar themes to the book of Galatians. In Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That sounds familiar from Galatians. Then he says the reason for this, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that the role of the law is to Reveal to expose our sin. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, to increase it. Um, and so how does it do this? How does it increase the trespass? How does it show sin to, to be sin? Well, you'll remember that a few weeks ago we talked about how the law in the Old Testament has really three parts to it, or three different kinds of law that God gave. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And really, each of those types of law shows something really unique about who we are and revealing our sin. And so just take, for instance, the, the moral law, the moral law of God that is summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments. These are are laws that they're not arbitrary. They reflect the very righteous and holy character of God. And, and what, the, what that does when we look at God's standard is it, it, ex, it shows how we fall short. And you can think of it almost like a ruler, that you're putting something up in your house, you put the ruler there, and it shows you whether you're actually on the mark or not. And a lot of times if, if I do work around the house, I'll just kind of hang it up there and, well, that looks good, and just kind of tack it to the wall and just kind of eyeball it. And if, but if somebody were to take a tape measure or a ruler and put it out, they'd say, wait, this is crooked, this isn't even. And maybe I didn't really see that before because I just wasn't looking closely enough. And that's the way that the, the law exposes sin in our life, that it, it comes and says, this is the character of God, lines it up next to us, and this is you, and this is how you fall short. But then also, so that's the, the moral law, but the ceremonial law also has... A, a way of exposing our sin. Now, you'll remember that the ceremonial law has food laws that you couldn't eat, ceremonial laws for cleanness and all of those kinds of things. But one of the aspects of ceremonial law was animal sacrifice, that Old Testament worship believers, their worship centered around taking animals and sacrificing them. And so, you know, instead of bringing in a gift that you would drop in the box like you do here, you would bring an animal to worship each Sunday. And that, well, not Sunday, but, that's, uh, but that animal would then be, be killed by the priest and the blood would be taken, be sprinkled into the presence of the Lord. And so as, if you were an Old Testament believer, you're going to worship 
And just week in and week out, you're seeing an animal dying so that you can then approach God in worship. And that would just be a really powerful reminder of this is actually what my sin deserves, that God says that the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so it's this visceral reminder of that every single time that they would come to worship at the temple. So it exposes their sin. But then also the, the uh, civil law. So it, also in the Old Testament, there were laws that, that talked about different punishments for violating laws. And so it was their, their judicial code, basically. And, and some of them are very strict and severe. And we say that you know, we're not bound to follow the judicial laws today because we're no longer a nation state. We're not a theocracy. Uh, but they can be fairly terrifying. You, you look at adultery. The, the penalty that la- it lays out in the law was, was the death penalty. Uh, blaspheming God, it laid out the death penalty. Uh, all sorts of crime. There wasn't always the death penalty, but it shows the severity of these things. That sometimes we want to just be glib about the things that we've done, but you look at the judicial law in the Old Testament, you say, no, that these things are, are serious, that, that, that when we return against God, it's not just kind of a slap on the wrist type of thing, but, but it's something that we need to take extremely seriously. So really, the, this moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, all just drive home the fact that, that we, we fall short of God's glory in different ways. And I, th- I think you can imagine this sort of like a, a news story that I heard this, this past week. Of It was a home in New Jersey, in Hillside, New Jersey. And somebody, they, he saw some bees around his house. Not a big deal. He sees bees all the time. And then he saw a few more, and then he saw a few in his house and thought, okay, maybe a little bit more of a problem, saw a few bees going in and out of his home. And so he thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll bring a beekeeper just to check it out, get rid of it, probably just a small little hive. Well, they started opening it up, and they kept pulling out panel after panel after panel. And there were over 30,000 bees living in his wall and about 40 pounds of honey. So <laughs> a lot bigger deal, you know? than just a, just a small little hive, and actually really dangerous. I mean, that, that kind of hive just right there and that many bees if they had you know, gotten stirred up in, in some way. And so the, the homeowner there had a, a far bigger problem than he actually realized or, or thought was the case. And, and really, that's the way it is often with the, the sin in our life, where we, we say, well, we're not perfect. And that's kind of the couple bees that are, are going around. And yeah, I've gotten stung a couple times, Maybe my kids have gotten stung, my wife has gotten stung, some of my close friends, but it's not a huge deal. It's not a dangerous kind of thing. But then really what the, what the law does, the, the law in the Old Testament, is it's essentially the, this beekeeper that comes you know, in the full suit and just starts pulling off these panels in our heart and, and exposes what's already there. But that's why a lot of times Paul talks about it multiplying transgression, increasing sin. And it's not that the law of God actually makes, makes us worse in some way, but it, it just it exposes everything. Because you figure all those bees, they might have just been kind of dormant in there, but you pull off that panel and immediately all the bees come out, start swarming around, they're, they're angry. And that also happens to us a lot of times when we confront the law of God, where there, there are things that we've just wanted to keep deep down inside of our heart, 
that we thought wasn't a problem, but that panel gets pulled off, and so we want a reactive. Well, you can't tell me what to do, or well, I'm I'm basically a good person, or I've done more good than bad, or you know, who are you to impose this moral standard on me, or I can do whatever I want as long as no one hurts, or I don't hurt somebody else. And, and really what we're doing is we're trying to protect ourselves and try to keep all of the, these bees inside of our heart. But the all along, the, the law is doing its work. It's exposing sin within us. And so that's its, its first purpose that we see here. But also, the, the law isn't, per, isn't pointless for another reason, that the law actually imprisons sin within us, that it, it says in our text that it imprisons everything under sin. So, so look again at the end of verse 19. It says that the law was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, in those verses, there's a lot of really complicated stuff. Um, And especially if you look at verse 20 into verse 19 and 20, all this talk about angels and intermediaries and the nature of God being more than one. One commentary I, I looked at on this was saying that he had counted over 400 interpretations of verse 20 in church history. <laughs> uh, so we're obviously not going to be able to exhaust all of that today. But I think is often the case with scripture that when something is really complicated, it may be hard to parse out the details of it, but the main thing that God wants to show us is actually pretty clear. And so I think that the main thing here that it's getting at is that the law is some way subordinate to the promise. Paul's kind of returning to this point over and over again. And and he shows it by just how immediate the giving of the promise was versus the law. Um, So if you think of the the promise that God gave to to Abraham, God gave it directly to Abraham. There was no no one kind of standing between God and Abraham. It was was direct. But but 430 years later, when God gave the the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, there was these these steps of mediation to get it to the people. Uh, There's the bit about angels, which we won't get into, but you can look up Deuteronomy 33.2, Hebrews 2.3, Acts 7.53, which talk about the role of angels in the giving of the law. But then obviously Moses is an intermediary standing between God and the, and the people. So there's this, there's this sense of distance between the people here and, and God on, on Mount Sinai. And, and so what Paul's kind of drawing out of that is that shows something about the way we should think about the law versus the, the promise of God, that one is direct. And that's where then, again, he's anticipating our, our questions. That's why he raises another question in verse 21, because if you look there in your Bible, so if the, if the law came through all this mediation, I mean, we'd say it's so from God, maybe it's not just somehow a pointless thing that God gave the law, 
But maybe it's what Marcion was saying. Maybe the law is actually against the promise in some way or against the, the, what we see in the New Testament. And then he says, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? And we probably ask that as well. Is it contrary? And he says, certainly not. And then gives the reason right after that. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so what, he, what he's saying there is that rules don't give the ability to follow the rule. I mean, you, if you think about it, that, that rules don't give the strength to obey just by giving the rule. Um, so if you go to somebody who's a college student and you say, you must get 100% on your test and your exam, you can give them the, the rule, you can give them the command, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have the ability within themselves to get 100%. You can go to somebody, um, you know, maybe a, a close relative, and say, you must be nice all the time. That doesn't mean they're going to be nice, <laughs> right? That, that just by giving the rule or giving the law, it doesn't change the heart. It doesn't deal with what's inside. And it's the same thing with the law that God gave on Mount Sinai, that, that it doesn't give us the power to obey it. It doesn't give us the ability to, to actually live it, live it out. But that doesn't mean that God didn't give it for a purpose or for a reason. That God never intended the law to give us life. He didn't intend the law to be the way that we're going to get to God or we're going to, to get to heaven. And that's why he, he says in, in verse 23 that now before faith came, we were held captive, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law, it exposes our sin, it drives us to Christ, but we was talking about that the law puts us in prison so that we can come to Christ, that somehow we need to be imprisoned in order to, to get what we need, right? It's strange, uh, but it, it reminds me of, I heard about this man who was in prison, and he uh, was being treated for some very serious medical condition, and he was released for good behavior, but that meant that he lost his medical care that he was getting from being in prison. And he couldn't afford insurance, and he thought that he would probably die if he couldn't get this treatment that he was getting in prison. And so he actually committed a minor crime to go back to prison so that he could get the medical care that he needs. Now, now obviously, obviously, every analogy breaks down, and that one breaks down way faster than probably most <laughs> do. So, um, so take that with a grain of salt. But, I think that the, the general idea of that, that somebody who's, who's willingly being imprisoned in one sense so that they can get themselves in the position to actually get the care and the treatment that they need. And that's, again, what the law does to us, what God's moral standards do, is they, they imprison us so that we can actually receive the treatment that we need from the great physician, who is Christ. Now, I think that, that all of this... It, it's very relevant for us and important for us in the way that we have conversations with people and, and just the, the world around us. Um, because how do we talk about the law to other people? Or, or do we even talk about this is God's moral standard? Because what we don't want to do, you know, especially for somebody who doesn't really know what Christianity is about, we don't want to confuse the, the law and the promise and the way that we're explaining Christianity. Because remember, the, the, the promise is about what God has done. The law is what we must, must do. The, the promise is unconditional. 
the law is conditional. The promise is about grace, about unmerited favor. The law is about a merit, what we must do. And so when we're, when we're talking, we don't want to just kind of lay down law for people constantly and just telling them, this is God's standard, you better follow it. Because again, commands don't give the power to, to follow them. But I think that, that a lot of times what we'll end up doing is we'll go off the rail on the other direction, where in some ways we won't want to talk about the law or God's moral standard really at all. And I think that we, that we do that because we're afraid in some way, that, that we don't want to seem like we're, we're putting people down. We don't want to maybe be countercultural in different ways. Uh, and really using the language of our passage, that we don't want to imprison everything under sin. That we want to sort of help people say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of goodness in me, a lot of ways that I can, can work my way up to God. That in a, in a good way, we don't want people to think that they're being saved by the law, so we don't want to just be preaching the law. We don't want to seem judgmental, because there's a lot in Scripture about not judging others, and so we're afraid of that. Um, and then also, we don't want to drive people into guilt and despair. Um, and that also is something that we should definitely care about. We don't want to leave people in a place where they feel hopeless, right? We're, we're hope Presbyterian. We want to give hope. But yet God himself, in, in the unfolding of history, imprisoned everything under sin. That even after he gave the promise, he gave the law. And he gave the law for a purpose and for a reason. That it says here in verse 22 that he imprisoned everything under sin. And then the purpose was so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. So if we, if we only talk about the rules, only tell people what to do, we're misrepresenting Christianity. We're, we're putting people in prison under the law with no way out and get, not giving them the keys, just throwing the keys away. Uh, but if we then talk about the promise, but we don't actually, we're not honest about God's moral standard, that again, we're, we're misrepresenting what, what Christianity is about because that's the purpose, the role of, of God's law is to drive us to Christ, to pull back the, the panel in our heart to expose what is actually there to show that the sweetness of the promise to show our need for the promise to show actually what Jesus has done for us on the cross so we could say that the the law and the promise they're not contradictory they're complementary and and you can see how complementary they are through a really great illustration that was given by a guy John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and I mention that book fairly often because it is one of my favorite books. Um, but he uses a lot of allegory to show different truths about Christianity. And there's one where it, the, so Christian, the character in the book, is given this vision of this scenario. And it's this, this dark, dusty parlor room. And everything is covered with dust. And you know, probably like some of our rooms in our house. Um, and so somebody comes in with a broom and just starts sweeping. And if you've ever done that where there's a lot of dust and you just start to sweep, you know, it doesn't clean it. It just all of a sudden all the dust comes up into the air and it starts choking and you can't breathe. You have to have some sort of a, a face mask or something like that to, to be able to handle it. And what Bunyan says is that's the, the way that the law works in our heart, that, that our sin is just the dust that's laying all over the furniture. And that the law comes in and starts sweeping 
but it doesn't actually have the power to clean it, right? That it just stirs it up in some ways. And this is what he says here, that, that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul, even as it does discover and forbid it. For it does not give power to subdue it. And he, he, Bunyan just got that right out of Galatians, that the law doesn't have the power to subdue the sin. That's, that's not what it can actually do. But then in, in this, this scenario that he gives, somebody comes in with water and just pours this fresh, cool water into the room, and the water settles the dust. And then somebody comes in and is able to scrub everything perfectly clean. And that's what the, the promise, the gospel of what Christ has done comes and it, it just calms the, the accusations, what we have from the law, and it enables then the Holy Spirit to come and do his work, to, to clean and to, to mend and to get everything into ship, or what's the word? Well, top shape, whatever. Um, so, so that is another role of the law, that it imprisons everything under sin. But here's then the, the final point of the law that we see here, that, that it prepares the way for Christ. And look at, at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So here you see him using an illustration himself, that, that he's comparing the law to a, a guardian. And the, the Greek word for guardian is actually uh, pedagogos, where we get the English word pedagogue or, or teacher. But it, at that time, it didn't really mean teacher in the way that we think of a, a pedagogue. Uh, but a pedagogue was usually actually a slave who would accompany a child to and from school. And even while they were at the school, he would be kind of an attendant for the kid to make sure that he was staying on task and, and learning the lessons in the right way. Um, and so what, what Paul's doing is, is picking up that, something that I'm sure the Galatians would have known and understood from their own experience. And he's saying the law is like the pedagogos, that he's like the, the pedagogue, the guide, the teacher that, that you have. Because the, 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 the guide, this, this pedagogue, is not against the parent in some way. He's not working against the, the will of the parent. And he's, it's not like he's completely pointless. Uh, but but this, this guardian has a specific role for a specific time. But then when the child gets to be of age, everything changes. He's no longer under this, this guide. And Paul's saying that that's the way that the law is in your life, that God gave it to you as the, this guardian this, to get you from point A to, to point B. Uh, but then he says that you are no longer under the guardian if you're in Christ, that if you have repented and, and trusted in Christ for salvation. Now, I, I'm sure that there are some, some here who might be at the place where you say, I'm still not sure about Christianity. And, and maybe you, you st still are thinking, well, you know, I, I think I'm a pretty good person, that I, I'm going to get to heaven. I think... I've done more good than bad, so God is going to accept me. And, and so if that's where you are, I would just really encourage you to, to read, to study God's law. And I think you'll be surprised in, in the way that 
it can get in there and it starts to expose things. And it's going to be really uncomfortable often because we, we'd never like to be told in any way that we're doing anything wrong. It's just human nature. But then some of you might be at the place where you've kind of gotten through that first step, that, that you, you, you're here and you're just feeling weighed down by, by guilt and, and shame, and, and you feel like, oh, I could never live up to God's standards. I, I don't know if I could even come to him. I, ha- I had a friend who once who said that he couldn't pray to God because he, he, he prayed for something once and just couldn't go back to God. The sense of God is just this cruel judge that, that we can't approach. And if that is where you are, then it could be a sign that actually the law of God is, is doing its work in your, in your life, that it's, it's exposing sin, it's pulling back the panels, the bees are coming out, the dust is, is coming into the air. But that's not where God wants to leave you, because that's, that's not the hope and the, and the promise that we have in Christ, that what comes to us then is the, the good news of, of what Jesus has done for us, that, that he comes and says, yeah, you, you have fallen short of God's glory in many ways, but yet I love you nonetheless, that, that the scripture says that God so loved the world that he, he gave his son, and that Jesus took upon himself a, a true human nature, and he lived under the law, and he perfectly obeyed the law in every single way, and he died, he took all of the, the punishment and all the penalty on himself that that we deserve. And so we can really say, verse 26, in our own life, that that if we're in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, that we are sons, daughters through Christ. And that's an incredible privilege that we have through Jesus. And so the, the question then at that point is, is the law then even, if, if you've come to know Jesus, you've experienced the promise, does the law have any role or function at all? And actually, Paul doesn't get into this here, but he will in chapter 5 and 6 where he, of Galatians, where he's going to show for somebody who has been freed from the law, from the guilt of the law, that, that God's rules, his standards, still actually have a role in the Christian life for showing us what it looks like to follow Jesus. But I think what you can think about it as is the difference between a mirror and a window. And sometimes, it's, you know, if the light is right, a, a window kind of turns into a mirror. And so if you, if you look at it, all you see is yourself. And that's what happens to us at first when we look at God's moral standard, when we look at his law. It's this mirror, and it's just reflecting back on us. This is who you are, and we see all of the imperfections and everything. And then as we encounter the, the promise, and we see what Jesus actually has done for us, and, and his love and his mercy, that, that this mirror turns into a window and so we look through the window then and instead of just seeing our own imperfections what we see is is the glory and the majesty of God that that we see that wow this is actually a a reflection of his character that this is this is what the God who loved me enough to save me looks like this is these are the things that he loves these are the things that he hates and therefore these are the things that I want to love these are the things that I want to to follow, and I'm not doing it because I think that I'm going to earn his favor or work my way up to heaven, but I'm just so in love with the God who saved me that I want anything that, that shows his character. And you can think about this also as um, through this illustration that I heard from another pastor years ago in North Carolina. And he said that his, his mother had been 
uh, mistreated by, by men a lot through her life. And so she had very strict rules in their family growing up that you need to always honor and respect women. And he, he said at first it was just, okay, I'm following these rules of my mom. But as he got older, he, he started to realize how much the, all the, these rules that he instilled in her were really rooted actually in her experience, who she was. And so if he loved his mother, that these rules actually reflected the, the character of, of his mother and who she is. And so he started to really even love um, the, the rules of the, of the household. And it's the, the same way for us, that, that we, we, we love the rules of the God who who redeemed us, and we, we seek to live by them, but we're also freed from them through Christ. So we, we said that the, the law is, is a picture, that it, it shows so much of, of who we are, and our, exposes our sin. But again, the, the, the law is always subordinate to the, to the promise, that it doesn't show the whole story. And, and this meal here, the Lord's Supper, um, it, it shows the end of the story. It shows what the law in and of itself could not show. And in some ways, we, we can't make sense of this without understanding the law. Why is it that Christ's body was broken? Why is it that his blood was shed? Well, it goes back to what we said, the moral, the ceremonial, the civil law, that, that his blood was shed because he was the sacrificial lamb who was taking away the sins of the world. And it, he, we fall short, and he obeyed. And, of course, that the sin has consequences. And he took the consequences that we deserve on himself. But yet this also shows the, the, the mercy, the love, the, the faithfulness that he has displayed for us in saving us. Now, if you're here and, and you're, you're not a believer, if the, the 